Lord, you have drawn us here, and we are called by your name. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock and our redeemer, and you are our rabbi. Would you come and teach us? Amen. Is that good? All right. Hi, everyone. Um, I think I know every single one of you, so I don't think I'm going to introduce myself. Because <laughs> I have. I'm Tish. I'm a priest here. Um, so I'm not sure if you are aware, excited, or feeling dread, whatever, but maybe you've heard there's this big thing happening sometime around November, this presidential election uh, this year. So God help us. Um, and if you begin to listen to the candidates and the promises they're making, the things they're running on, um, you'll notice that, that they touch on different things that we kind of most long for. A lot of their promises promise things that we want, that we desire. I'm not saying that um, they can deliver on these promises, but I am saying that the hunger for justice, for security, for safety, for freedom, for dignity, for order, for equality, for provision, for human flourishing, are things that politicians speak to, that they target, because human hearts are made to want these good things. We're made to long for these things. Part of us longs naturally, inevitably, for goodness, for peace, for joy, for hope, for beauty. And in this, we are longing for the kingdom of God, which can't be won by any politician. But politics, if they are good, if they are just, if they are ordered, can bring a modicum of goodness and a modicum of justice into this world. So people who want to win kind of pull on these natural heart longings. But there is something that you won't find in any party platform that no politician will campaign on or will promise you, and that is suffering. Come and die will not be a winning slogan for either party ever in America, right? Vote for me, come and die. Actually, <laughs> that would be pretty, I think they would get my vote, just, just for the sheer like novelty of that. But I guarantee you that's not gonna be what, what we see in either of the conventions this year, come and die. And because we're kind of used to politicians selling themselves to us, and the consumer market selling itself to us, we often approach life by habit, um, mainly concerned with the question, so what is in this for me? And then we can take that habit and disposition and we come to God with the same mindset. What is in it for me? What is on offer? How will religion or the church or God make me happier, more fulfilled. <laughs> it's on fire. Yeah. That's all right. It's, it's 
I don't know where I'm lost. I was, uh, come and die, fire. Um, so we tend to approach God this way, saying, what is in this for me? How will this make me more fulfilled, right? And right before our passage in Mark today, and also in its parallel in the book of Matthew, Peter has this incredible insight. He says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it's like, yes, he gets it. Bingo, this incredible insight that Peter brings. Peter got who Jesus was. He understood his identity in a way that very few people did. And I love Peter so much um, for so many reasons, but he's always kind of the top student the A student, and a complete failure at the same time. He gets who Jesus is and still has no idea who Jesus is. And I identify with this so deeply that it gives me hope. Peter recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but in Peter's imagination, the Messiah would look a certain way would do certain things. The Messiah would bring the kingdom of God. He would set things right on earth. He would bring order and freedom and peace. He would end oppression. He would bring political power to a marginalized people. He would bring justice. And from the second that Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus just completely defies what Peter thinks the Messiah should do and who a Messiah should be, what a Messiah should be like. From the moment that, that Peter recognizes him, proclaims him as the Messiah, from that very moment on, Jesus begins to talk about how he will suffer and die. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, that takes some serious self-confidence to rebuke someone that you literally just named as the Messiah. It's a lot, Peter. I mean, he has some guts. But Peter says, no, this is not the way it's supposed to work. You're getting the story wrong, Jesus. Peter knows, he thinks, what a Messiah is. He's been waiting for the Messiah his whole life. He's been imagining this. The Messiah doesn't die a criminal's death on the cross. See, Peter here wants the kingdom without a cross. And that's always what the world wants. That's what we want, the kingdom, all of these good things without a cross, without suffering. In Matthew 4, 8 through 9, Satan tempts Jesus with this very thing. In the wilderness, we read this at the beginning of Lent, Satan says to Jesus, he shows him all the kingdoms of this world, and he says, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. He shows Jesus, 
all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is the reigning king of the world. He is the king of kings. He deserved what Satan was promising, to have all the world bow down to him. Eventually, the scriptures promise every knee will bow to Jesus. So what's the temptation here? Satan's temptation was to say that you can have all the power due to you, you can bring the kingdom of God, and you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. But with this Messiah, with, with Jesus, with his kind of Messiahship, his authority always comes with ultimate vulnerability. With his glory always comes suffering. Here, Peter, the one on whom Jesus will build his church, this great hero of the faith, has the same mindset as the devil, as the enemy, as the tempter. If we value power, if we value safety, if we value the good life and flee from suffering, we cannot value the things of God. And Jesus takes this really seriously. So he speaks to Satan. He speaks to the enemy here as Peter. Because they're offering the same temptation. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And this is an interesting phrase. One thing it could mean is that rabbis or teachers at this time had their disciples or apprentices literally walk behind them. A first century blessing is, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Would you stand behind your rabbi? And Jesus is literally putting Peter in his place, reminding him of his place. You are not the teacher. You, I don't follow you and your ideas. You get behind me. He's reminding Peter, you, no matter how smart you think you are, Peter, are not the rabbi. You don't teach me what messiahship looks like. I tell you what kind of messiah I am. Those who live to avoid suffering do not have, cannot have, the uh, concerns of God in mind. But we do and can try to use God for our own ends. They want, we want, I want, I'm part of this. So often our own version of the good life with a Jesus fish slapped on the back of it. And Jesus tells us and Peter, I am the Messiah that suffers and dies. In fact, I bring the kingdom through my very death. In literature, this moment is what's called a reversal. Right? It's the moment where the plot twist, where the very thing that you least expect happens, comes to pass. Jesus is the Messiah that these people have waited for for generations upon generations, who mothers have told their children about. He is the one that will set things right, that will end oppression, that will establish the power of Israel. And as soon as this was revealed, immediately he's promising suffering and death. And what good is a Messiah if he isn't going to do what we want him to do? 
If this was a democracy, he would be voted out. He would be impeached. But this is not a democracy, thanks be to God. This is the king establishing his kingdom. So Jesus talks about his suffering, and then he turns to his disciples, and he calls them to the same. He calls them to suffer. He says, whoever wants to be, to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus here defines the good life. He tells us what the Messiah is like. I read this quote every morning, or well, almost every morning, from uh, Eugene Peterson. It's part of this sort of liturgy I do before uh, writing, which is my job. And um, I read it every day, and I still honestly do not think that I've absorbed it and its implications. It's one of my favorite quotes, so I hope I haven't overhyped it. But Peterson, Peterson says, Jesus is the dictionary in which we look up the meaning of words. I mean, that alone, just, that's fire, it slays. Jesus is the dictionary in which we look up the meaning of words. When we look up the glory in Jesus, we find, are we ever ready for this? Obscurity, rejection, and humiliation, incomprehension and misapprehension, a sacrificial life and an obedient death, the brightness of God backlighting what the world despises or ignores. So Jesus says, take up your cross. For his disciples, he means this literally. He actually means that if they want to follow him, if they want him as their rabbi, they must be willing to die. And most of them that he was talking to did eventually die, literally, for their devotion to Jesus. So what does this mean for us? A few things. I will run through them very quickly. Number one, and then I have a whole, a whole other thing. To say I run through it quickly doesn't mean we're nearing the end, sorry. So number one, <laughs> we need to be skeptical of any promise of God's glory or God's kingdom coming that does not also entail a cross. The way of power promises no weakness, and it is a lie. There are religious people on the left and the right who want to use God and the language of God to shore up power for a political party or for America. And this is not the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. His call is always to vulnerability, to meekness, to service, to lay down our lives for, the sake, for his sake and for the sake of others. He's not found among the powerful, but among the least of these. Anytime we want power without weakness, we want a life without vulnerability, we want the kingdom without a cross, we want God's glory without suffering, we need to let ourselves be rebuked by Jesus here, just as he rebuked Peter, who he loved. We need to relearn what kind of Messiah he is. So number two, what does this mean for us? If you want to follow Jesus, if we want to follow Jesus, we must be willing to die. We must be willing to suffer. I 
cannot give you false campaign promises about what Jesus will do for you because Jesus didn't. He didn't try to sell himself to get your vote. He didn't um, kind of bend over backwards to try to make you on board with his program. Do not come to Jesus unless you want to surrender your life and everything in it to him, or at least that you want to want to surrender your life and everything in it to him. Your hopes, your dreams, your money, your safety, your power, your success, your sexuality, your relationships, your politics, your children, your very life. He's asking for it all. So number three, well, what if this sounds hard or intimidating? Well, good, it should, you're getting it. I think it is hard and intimidating. I think it was hard and intimidating to Peter. That's why he kind of freaked out here. Jesus, not the American dream, must define our idea of the abundant life. Do you want to see what the abundant life looks like? Look at the life of Jesus. And we discover, to our surprise, it's this, he's single. He dies in poverty. He died young. He died misunderstood. He's a man full of sorrows and abundant life. But Jesus doesn't bend over backwards to win our vote. He's not after our approval, but he is after us. He's after our life. Okay, so I've preached this passage, this very passage, probably four times through the years. And this is usually where I stop. And maybe you're like, okay, wind it up. But I'm going to be preaching, at least for myself. This is where I stop usually. God isn't promising you the American dream. He promises a cross. Following him entails suffering. Take him or leave him. And that's fine. That's good. But what I've realized over the past year or so is that that's not good enough. Because what that gives you is a truth. God does call us to a cross. He does call us to suffering. But it doesn't give you a reason. It doesn't tell you anything about what might motivate us to this hard way of the cross. If all God offers us is suffering, one might be forgiven for saying, well, I mean, why do I want to follow this suffering Messiah? Why not just take up the American dream or pleasure or comfort or ease or fun? It's like that famous uh, Eddie Azard comedy bit, right? Cake or death. Like, why pick cake? I mean, why pick death, right? Why pick suffering if there's something better? Why would you choose death over cake? That's the whole bit, right? It's cake or death. Everybody wants cake. They run out of cake. Um, but here's the thing. What will motivate us, what will move us to be willing to die is not shame. It's not fear of hell. It's not the stoic sense of willpower. It's not religiosity, and it's not duty. Jesus is saying something more profound here than just promising suffering, although he is promising suffering. And to look at that, 
we need to go back to this weird Old Testament reading we heard today, the story of Abraham. This is a weird story, and there's a lot to unpack in it, and I'm not going to be able to unpack all of it. But I'm happy to talk about it after. <laughs> For a long time, I thought this story was mainly about Abraham's kind of stoic obedience and trust in God. And it is, to some extent, about Abraham's trust. Abraham did trust and obey God in a radical way in this story. But this, the key to the story is the ram. Because in ancient Canaanite cultures, where this um, happened, where the story was kind of first told, neighboring nations practiced regularly um, child sacrifice. It was a picture of kind of the ultimate devotion to their gods. Moloch, Baal, you see this happen. They did lay their children on the line for gods. Their gods who were cruel, who did not bring or value life. And if the story is just about being willing to suffer for God or sacrifice your children for gods, other people did that. Other nations did that. The shocking thing for the hearers of this story at the time is that God actually isn't cruelly demanding the blood of children, God steps in and provides. God provided another way. This is why the place, it tells us at the end, it's a weird little detail, the place where this happens wasn't in the end named Abraham trusted or Abraham almost sacrificed. It was named the Lord will provide. That's the point of the story. They kind of give you the moral there in the name. The star of the story isn't Abraham or Isaac. It's God. It's Yahweh. And the rescue comes in this story from a ram found in the thicket. God provided a ram. And if we read this story in light of our New Testament passage in Romans 8, because Christians... We should always read individual verses and stories in light of the whole canon of Scripture. We read this on to the story. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Abraham's son was spared because God did not spare his own son. Jesus is the ram in the thicket. He is the ram who died in our stead, the one who died in our place. God provided the ram out of love, passionate love for Abraham. But the, lamb could, the ram could not atone for the sins of the world. God provided again his own son in our stead, out of passionate love for us. We cannot trust God like Abraham trusted God here unless we trust that Jesus is the ram and that he took that on joyfully out of love for us. He is the lamb that provides what we cannot so then we come back to the call 
that Jesus gives us in Mark 8 to the cross. It's not that we are asked to abandon kind of the cake of the good life, the cake of the American dream, right? The cake of wealth or privilege for death. Jesus says here in Mark 8, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And this opens up the passage to show us why we would follow this Messiah into suffering. Why would anyone do that? Jesus seems to be saying here that what we think is the cake ends up being death. And what we see as only death is the way to resurrected life. Losing our life is the only way in the end to find the true source of life, the abundant life that we long for. Jesus here is telling Peter and telling us that, um, that not that there's like something good in itself about suffering, but that abundant life, the abundant life that we are called to and made for is always cruciform. It's shaped like a cross. It looks different than we think. It looks different than what's been sold to us in our consumer economy. Abundant life looks like the cross, not because God is punishing us, not because God is cruel, but because resurrection follows a cross. Jesus is not calling us to stoically follow a heartless God who finds some kind of sick delight in our suffering just because it's the right thing to do. He's showing us that the good life we think a Messiah should deliver is actually less good than the, what the true Messiah has for us. So out of your self-interest even, put your hope in a God that brings life out of death. God is not a monster calling us to kind of um, prove our loyalty with pain. He's a lover. Deep down, God is a lover of our souls. He's calling us to suffering and bringing life from death. The bedrock connection here between the story of Abraham and between Jesus' call to a cross in the New Testament is that God is always, always trustworthy because he's always coming after us. We will learn to follow Jesus, to take up our cross, to die to self, when we believe, when we begin to believe and dare to believe that the life that Jesus gives us is better than what we could cook up on our own. It's actually better than the American dream. It's better than what we can design. The life that he gives us, life with him, is truly abundant. And it is rooted in the deep and true love of God. It is the love of God that calls us to a cross, or that call makes no sense at all. Trusting his love is the only thing that can make the suffering worth it, to be able to know this love that's better than our very lives. And this love works in us. It works in our lives through suffering because suffering pries us apart from all lesser loves. Suffering separates us from pleasure 
from self-worship, from ease, from wealth, from our very lives, but suffering cannot separate us from the love of God. Suffering may separate you from everything else, but neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Many of you have heard this week that Alexei Navalny, who opposed Putin, was murdered in a prison camp in the Arctic Circle. At his 2021 trial, Navalny said this. He said, the fact is that I am a Christian, which usually rather sets me up as an example for constant ridicule in the Anti-Corruption Foundation, which was the political nonprofit he started. Because mostly our people are atheists. And I was once quite a militant atheist myself, but now I am a believer. And that helps me a lot in my activities because everything becomes much, much easier. I think about things less. There are fewer dilemmas in my life because there is a book in which, in general, it is more or less clearly written what action to take in every situation. It's not always easy to follow this book, of course, but I am actually trying. When Navalny survived his first poisoning in 2020, he was resuscitated in Germany and he could have stayed there and been kind of an international celebrity. Instead, he returned to Russia knowing that it would likely mean his death. Why? Why would anyone be willing to do that? Why was he willing to die? When Navalny was sit into prison this last time, he asked for two books, the Psalter and the New Testament. He believed in a Christian faith that was different than that proclaimed by Putin. He believed in a faith that called for suffering, for truth, for love of neighbor, a faith that wasn't hungry for power, but was hungry for righteousness. A faith that says, that proclaims that abundant life is cruciform, that it is cross-shaped. So he took up his cross and he went back. We may not you may not be called to die as a political prisoner as Navalny did. But loving our neighbor, following truth, it will cost us something. And Jesus promises that. So what could motivate us to take up this kind of life? Only a God who is more committed to our flourishing than we are who gives us a love that is better than life itself, who promises that death itself is no match for the power of the love of God who did not spare his son for us. God calls us to a cross. He gives you a cross. And he will graciously give you all things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.